1: Welcome to Knowles 24-7's On The Bench Podcast. I am your host for today's episode, Brendan Snow, joined by Chris Nee, Zach Losting, Fellas, happy Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday. Hmm. Happy
2: Mother's Day to your moms.
1: Belated Mother's Yours Day. Yours too, Zach. Yours too, buddy. Thank you. I was going to make a Mother's Day joke, but I couldn't think of one in time. Still letting the coffee enter the bloodstream right now. So, since our last podcast, I, I think it's kind of funny because we're talking about potential positions to need the transfer portal and kind of how things have been fairly slow. And, and then all of a sudden, there's some uh, interest out there. Some names that emerge. There's actually a transfer prospect in the in the JUCO ranks who officially visits Florida State, gets an offer, visits, and commits elsewhere within the span of a week. So, uh, a lot happened last week in the world of recruiting for a fairly uh, dull you know, kind of slow time of year as we kind of tread water between now and June camp. So let's get into the developments of the transfer portal. And then there's also a lot of visitors on campus this weekend as well. And then some some odds and ends with uh, some of the other sports as well. Baseball, softball, uh, beach volleyball had a really good run. So let's get into uh, to that as well. But first, fellas, the offensive line board seems to be materializing some when it comes to transfer products. I want to highlight two names for you. First, let's start with Dimitri Emanuel from Charlotte. Uh, Chris, I'll throw this one to you. He seems like someone who we should probably be keeping a pretty close eye on for the, uh, I guess, the foreseeable future of his recruitment.
0: Yeah, he has direct ties to Alex Atkins from Atkins' time at Charlotte. He's a kid that can definitely help FSU as a swing lineman. Interior is his strength. He probably could get away with being a right tackle. Um, He's being very quiet about his recruitment upon entering the portal. We have conversed very briefly with him. I believe that was Brendan that conversed with him, but he essentially said, I'm not going to talk about it until I make a decision is what I believe he told you. Is that correct, Brendan?
1: That's correct. When he realized I was a reporter, there was like a four second pause. I'm like, Oh, he's gonna hang up on me. He's going to hang up on me. That's, it's, the, it's the, worst
2: cr- pause. That's the worst pause. Ever. You
1: know, you know that all too well, Zach, right? When they're trying to figure it out.
2: <laughs> yeah. first they think you're a college coach, like talk, you know, about to extend them an offer. Then boom. You, you mentioned that you want to report on their recruitment and it's over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it was four-second delay. But to his credit, he was, you know, when you recruit someone who's like a fifth-year senior, you want to have a level of maturity, and he handled that pretty well just to say, hey, listen, I'm not going to talk about this right now. Uh, I will announce it on my own time. So uh, Florida State, we can confirm, does have interest. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, he's someone that Alex Atkins would have familiarity with and comfort recruiting, and understands the guy who has 1,500 college-level snaps at Charlotte. His best PFF grade was in the 69 range, nice, in 2019, which was his lone season with Alex Atkins, someone who started at both tackle positions, I believe both guard positions as well. So he'd be jumping up a level in competition. But uh, Zach, I know we've talked about this before just in the text thread, like the pickings are pretty slim right now in the the offensive line, uh, in the transfer portal. Uh, This guy seems like he's probably among the – the best fits and the most uh, most impactful potential players existing right now by or Buy.
2: by um, I think, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think there's anyone really in the portal right now that they're in on that that's going to be a difference maker to the top of their roster. Um, you know, I think Dimitri Emanuel could definitely help on their offensive line, but I'm not convinced he's like a, a surefire starter, a guy that's going to go out there and, 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 you know, really improve that offensive line but i definitely think he helps that that maybe top 7 group uh, of guys that you need to go into a season they need depth i mean one injury they're one injury away from you know putting some guys that probably should not be on the field on the field um this coming season so i definitely think he'd be a valuable addition but like like I, like you said it's slim pickings there's not really a lot of great options and i think this helps more of the bottom of the roster depth more than you know the top of the roster talent uh, and, and star power.
0: Yeah. It's the idea of essentially a better version of a Brady Scott last year for that, a guy that if you have to have somebody to plug and play, who can play multiple positions, who has a heck of a lot of college reps under their belt.
1: It's a similar. And the next thing I'm going to bring up, I think kind of fits under similar category when you're talking about the value being depth more than surefire starter. And that's Justin tarantine from South Carolina. He's someone who entered the portal. I think, uh 10 days ago i was watching film of him in las vegas at my hotel room Is what i remember um humble brag because i was watching film in las vegas yeah was it the vegas part or the watching film part
0: no vegas part i mean the fact you're watching film in vegas you're doing it wrong
1: (laughs) that's i didn't think it was that much of a humble brag uh more of just me being jackass uh so anyways jazzy turrentine entered the portal about 10, 10 days or so ago, about two weeks ago, let's just say that. And he's someone who has starting experience at the SEC level from South Carolina. However, uh, as Chris likes to say, when, when someone has up and down PFF grades and they're color-coded, uh, the PFF grades look like a bag of Skittles. It's all over the place. Uh, I think he finishes with like a 49 PFF grade, which is below average. Uh, the knock on him is that he's fairly out of shape. And that was something I think that a previous coaching staff had kind of lamented a little bit uh, I think it was Will Muschamp was on record to say like oh, he came here in great shape and then the pandemic happened. Was Will Muschamp there in 2020? Yeah, that would have been his last year. Uh, and basically like then the pandemic happened and he got out of shape and just seems to never re- get into it. But he's someone that I think if you watch him – well, have either of you guys watched him play before I get into my thoughts on him or at least if familiar with his background?
0: I watched a little bit of film when his name came up. Um, Beggars can't be choosers, but, yeah, he doesn't do it for me. Sorry.
1: Felt oh, similarly, Chris. Um, what I see is a guy who just there's some movement skills there, but it's just not consistent from like play to play. And I think that has to do with conditioning and shape. Yeah, you know, he's someone if you were able to get him into campus, and all of a sudden he get he loses 20 pounds, and all of a sudden I think you're cooking with something there. Especially if you can move him in to guard, because I think he has the frame to play outside or inside. But that takes us back to this whole beggars choosers dynamic and depth. Uh, at this point, the transfer portal, I think this is what makes the Mary Mims, not to belabor that point, but like that's what makes that hurt all the more is you were looking at someone who was going to change the entire dynamic complexion of your starting five on the offensive line. Uh, and the drop-off from that to what's available currently at this moment, that's assuming there's no grad transfers who pop in in the coming weeks here. Uh, it's, it's drastic. There is a drastic drop-off, and it's just been tough to kind of – go from oh you're going to be able to potentially get this guy who you put at left tackle you allow robert scott to move here or darius washington move here and you all of a sudden you're, you're dreaming of all these pieces in play to where it's now you're, you're saying well this guy could be a brady scott type of player for us or, or a brady scott type of role uh, but that's that's the world you're living in right now
0: yeah I, it's meager there's yeah. just not enough i think there was an expectation of a lot more to hit the portal than actually did to be perfectly honest. And I'm talking not from an FSU viewpoint. I'm talking from a national landscape viewpoint.
1: Yeah, not, not just Florida State, but I, I think everyone was expecting it. And I'm looking forward to like the think pieces and the analytics and people saying why, but I think ultimately it's just after two years of everyone transferring with without any type of, you know, uh, just kind of doing it because it was there and because it was the thing that you could do and, and should do, uh, I think the mark has kind of reset itself and it's just done so very abruptly. It's almost like the game of musical chairs that the music has stopped playing uh, yeah. and you're going to get caught standing a little bit. But back to the office alignment who are available, I do think Dimitri Emmanuel does provide, if you were to go after him, which we expect, uh, we haven't gotten word of any visits or anything like that right now. I think that's going to be a recruit that's played pretty close to the vest on both sides. Uh, if that goes as expected and you can go ahead and, and get someone that you, know, you have a previous relationship with I think he probably helps you in in a starting capacity if not being your sixth or seventh man like Zach alluded to. Uh same thing with Tarrantine. Uh he I don't think you want to go into my, with the season into the season as your starter but is there is he an upgrade to where he prevents you from getting to maybe Lloyd Willis if you think Lloyd isn't ready yet then then yeah then he helps you to where you're not eating into your depth. So uh, that's yeah, where we're he, at right now.
0: His greatest value is experience
1: right and and there are some like there is evidence you know one of the biggest mistakes i think you can make in evaluation is just because you see it happen like once or twice is that it could happen all the time uh, there are really good examples some games where he played at a high level in the sec uh, against defense lines that had guys go ahead and get drafted against tennessee against florida like uh, so so there is evidence there uh, i do think you don't want to go into the season with someone like that as a starter because there's even more evidence that say, hey, it's not going to be consistent. But could he come in and play 20 snaps in a game free without things totally imploding? Like that's I, I think that's the mindset of where you're looking at, where this staff is probably recruiting in, in in that realm now. You're not looking for a surefire plug-and-play starter. You're looking for someone who can help out the depth at a position that still needs depth. So that's the offensive line board right now. Uh, we will have updates like if if players enter the portal, if there's grad transfers, I'm sure they would be of interest to Florida State. Uh, one thing that's come up on the board a few times, fellas, and I think we've talked about this before that there was this calculator risk. We talked about it last off season as well. And we talked about it this early part of this off season was FSU was taking a bit of a calculated risk and not being super aggressive. Now they did get two transfers and Caden Lyles and bless Harris. Uh, they kind of want to see what the market, you know, allowed post spring and to see if they needed any more office alignment, if they were fine with what they had and spring happens and they realize they need at least one more, maybe two, uh, did they miscalculate the market and miscalculate their own needs and development potentially? Because I think that's kind of what we're looking at here: is that there was a bit of a, a bit of a things didn't things didn't materialize the way that they wanted it to uh, with the offensive line development. Now that's forced them to go back to the market.
0: I mean, as I said earlier, I think there was an expectation of more entering. So I guess in that sense there was a miscalculation. But I think that's across the board nationally. I mean, they clearly want two more. Dimitri would satisfy one of those two spots. They're scouring for another one. Um, You know, there's a Juco lineman, Quentin Williams, who picked up an offer last week too. He's a kid that I don't – he kind of falls in the same category as a South Carolina kid. I don't know how much he truly may help them, especially in the immediate future. But, again, big body. There's some stuff there. You know, uh, they're definitely looking I just don't think they're going to take to take. I think it's a matter of if they want to try to get better, and Dimitri does make them better. I don't know if any of the other ones we've discussed during this segment make them better.
2: Yeah, and I think the JUCO ranks. Um, you know, I don't. I'm not sure, in my opinion, if it's a, if it's going to be a viable answer for them as far as adding you know guys that are valuable to their roster. But I think that's a rank that they're fully going to explore. Um, I fully expect them to 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 scour the the JUCO ranks in search of an offensive lineman that can help them. We saw the Quinson Williams offer go out and I and, and I don't I don't think they're done um at the JUCO level as well, just because of how the transfer portal unfolded in that last week.
1: I think they're I mean, gonna have good a lot of company there too, right? Like I think that's yeah. where a lot of a lot of schools yeah. are gonna start looking at now. Is there a
0: transfer lineman that they seemingly ignored who turned into someone they probably should have pursued? I mean, Tyler Steen, they weren't going to get. He ended up at Frazier. But they didn't ignore him. They pursued him. I know it was a little bit weird and awkward, but they didn't just like flat out ignore him. They were involved in that recruitment. Yeah, I, they, I don't buy that they were all in.
1: I don't think they were aggressive with him because they were wanting about fit and and whatnot. And that was again, they were being selective at that point and the market. The market changed rapidly. I, I think that's the big takeaway. It's like what you were projecting just hasn't happened yet and probably is unlikely to happen at this stage. Um, yeah. Anyone else, I mean, Chris, that, that's worth looking at? I, I think it's an interesting exercise. Well, I don't
0: think available, but like Ryan Sabrota is another name that I know we discussed, Raekwon O'Neill Sabrota ended up at uh, UCF from Virginia. O'Neill ended up at UCLA from Rutgers. Again, uh, in Svoboda's case, I think he was looking for a definitive starting role, most likely, and I don't think that was the case here for him.
1: He had some Um, injury issues, too, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, I think that he didn't have a 100% chance of starting at a power
0: five And O'Neill, I just don't think they ever truly got strong enough in the mix with him to really be one that could sway the opinion of where he was going to end up. But there's not a ton. I mean, you can sit there and scroll back on the Portal on the listing on the network on the website, and look, and there's just not a whole lot of the names that are ultra appealing. I, I think they kind of banked on Amarius Mims, and I think that was true from basically January 1st on that at some point that name was going to hit the portal, and they were right in that regard. But obviously, that didn't play out in the manner that they had hoped.
1: Yeah, I don't even know if I'm super like critical. Like, when you could say there's there spots
0: that are much more poorly recruited on this football team than O-line. o is actually very line. effectively recruited.
1: Not, the not issue a super is that high level. Yeah.
0: if you take too many transfer guys, especially guys with multiple years who aren't very good, it will scare off a potential high school prospect you're trying to get. you got to balance that. There's a whole balancing act of that. And I understand you're trying to win now, and you got to have talent for this coming season, and it's important to get guys that are going to help you win August 20, whatever, rolls around and you're hitting the field for actual action this year. I get all of that. But it's a balancing act. I just don't know that they've necessarily passed on guys at that position in this cycle that would have helped. Them.
1: Yeah, and they, maybe they like had, we're talking to, we're talking about like two or three guys who maybe could have helped. So I guess it's not yeah. it's not like this catastrophic negligence. It's just you were hopeful that some things were going to emerge. You took a bit of a calculated risk, and it, it didn't. It, sometimes you roll the dice, and it doesn't show up your way. I do think, well, the last topic on the offensive lineman before we transition uh, is the, what's going to happen now. Is there and I already see it starting. Is there's this extreme hype machine building for the freshman offensive lineman coming in, mostly Julian Armella. And I would just caution if if you're of that belief, uh, I would just caution. Just that's a lot to put on a freshman enrolling in was a late May or, or early June. Um, yeah. I know it worked out for Robert Scott a couple of years ago, uh, but even then you have to kind of use him in a way that's pretty uh, narrow in, in scope. And so, yeah, you're, you're baking a lot if you're thinking that there's going to be a, a top, you know, seven rotational piece coming in in the next month or so from the freshman class, just not realistic. Yeah. The
0: reason you take a second, third, fourth year college player in portal at that position is they're physically prepared to handle it. And they've also, they dealt with it. They've taken bullets and, had the good moments and had the bad moments. It's a hell of a lot for a freshman, no matter how good they are at the offensive line position, to kind of go in there, get thrown in the fire, and handle it well. You're going, they're going to take some massive lumps out of the gate. You'll have to live that life if you have to live that life, but it's just not, it's not a ready-made position.
1: So let's transition to another position group that uh, is getting some interest here as fsu's trying to use its remaining scholarships and oh by the way uh there was a scholarship that opened up tj davis defense alignment as uh, medically disqualified from florida state uh, he was one of the names that we expected to enter the transfer portal i guess this is not technically entering the transfer portal but that was a name that chris had mentioned specifically as somebody thought probably need to to move on and unfortunately it's a medical disqualification for him but, which doesn't preclude him from playing at other schools down the road uh, we saw uh, it was it the baylor defensive end a couple of years ago come to florida state after being medically disqualified and not playing for a year or so at baylor but what basically a medical disqualification does is it allows the player to remain on scholarship at florida state but but the football program is able to use an extra scholarship uh in that player's place so I think you're at 80 scholarship players currently projected with the incoming freshmen for the 2022 20, roster. Uh, so you can add five more currently, and that's not including, we did not include Destin Hill nor Tay Woody into those projections. So um, anyways, as, as we talk about how you're trying to round out those scholarship spots and different position groups, defensive back is a position group that kind of keeps popping up. It seems like they want to try to enhance the depth. I think they feel pretty really good about their safeties they like their cornerback depth a lot, and they're still trying to figure out, I guess, who the starting cornerback is going to be opposite of Maureen Cooper. But I think they like their options there, uh, even if there's not like a surefire star right now. Uh, I think Isaria Thomas or Sam McCall have that potential in, in the next year or so. Uh, but anyways, uh, they're looking. And one name that emerged on Monday afternoon, not more than a few hours after we recorded Monday's podcast last week, was Jordan Wright. He's a JUCO product from the, from Tennessee. Uh, outside of memphis uh suburbs so someone that the staff would have had some level of experience with when they were back at memphis uh and he's someone who went to junior college had a really productive uh 2022 campaign committed to hawaii about three weeks ago and then all of a sudden some interest in that you know juco market heating back up that zach alluded to earlier Uh, he all of a sudden starts getting some offers kansas state he takes a visit to then he gets an offer to Florida State, takes an official to Florida State, and he commits to Kansas State on Sunday. So it was a it was a quick recruitment from Florida State. Said you offer him on Monday, he visits. By when did he visit, Chris? Wednesday? Did he land? Flew
0: in Tuesday. Visit was Wednesday, Thursday. Flew out Friday morning.
1: All right. So I'll let you talk about the official visit. I guess kind of because you got a hold of him. Yeah, I know you worked really hard to get the Jordan Wright scoop. Uh, and for the podcast purposes, it's not great content because we already know what happened. It all happened so fast.
0: Yeah, I mean, the visit was him spending a lot of time with Kewan Ratliff. Adam Fuller also talked to him. He dealt with Marcus Woodson, met with Mike Norvell. Obviously, some of the staff wasn't here as they were recruiting on the road, so it wasn't an entirety of the staff for his visit. He got to see the facilities, did a photo shoot, all those things, had conversations about how he fits into the plans in the secondary. Um, And he goes home, deliberates over it for about 36 hours, 48 hours, and decides on K-State. I mean, this is the second Juco recruitment we've had at DB in the last, what, four to six weeks. Justice Ugo was a prior one committed to Houston about a week ago now. On uh, Ugo's case, FSU kind of moved on after a while. Uh, at the end, there it was pretty clear he was going to Houston. I don't know if the moving on was because he was going to Houston or if because they just didn't want him. I was told that in Jordan Wright's case, he was a take. So it's not one of those things. But they've seen honestly to some degree lukewarm in both of these recruitments and i don't know if it's a matter of you know they don't love either of them they think maybe there's a portal option that is better or maybe they believe that room from a departure standpoint isn't going to have to suffer through anything and they're fine with the numbers feel that they have adequate numbers i'm not 100% clear on what their stance on all of that is it's db recruiting with them at times is uh there's guys that you know they wholeheartedly want, McCari Vickers, for example, in the 23 class. But there's a lot of guys they just kind of keep warm, and they don't always seem to truly care that they go elsewhere that doesn't play out in their manner. So I, Jordan Wright, to me, wasn't a panic button. moment, But it is just kind of weird that they've hosted two guys now from the Juco ranks at the DB position. And in both cases, it just, yeah, it, it went elsewhere and it was what it was, but they didn't seem... I don't know. It's weird to me to bring a kid in and be kind of lukewarm. Well, That's just well
1: I want to get into the DB the DB room dynamics in a minute here, Chris, but correct me if I'm wrong, just as it applies to Wright's recruitment, uh, Marcus Woodson, was he around at all during the official visit to our knowledge?
0: Uh, when I was up there on Thursday, I did not see Coach Woodson. I did see Coach Fuller that day, and when I saw Wright that day he was leaving with Kewan Ratliff. So I don't know if him and Woodson met prior day okay. or not. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, Woodson was on the road recruiting plenty last week. I don't know if he came off, did a day with Jordan Wright, went back out. I'm not sure.
1: And, and right. might have like, I think he, I, I don't know if he mentioned those coaches in the recap, or I don't know if he mentioned Woodson in the recap he did with you. I thought he mentioned Ratliff. I thought he mentioned Fuller and Norvell, as well, but I could be mistaken on that. Right. And just I just I
0: don't believe he mentioned Woodson specifically. Yeah. So, um, so when I, we I get
1: the I get the feeling this was a. Uh, I think I think there was like a measurement visit. Like you got the official, you had the official visits to you still for the 2022 recruiting cycle, and I think this was a lot of just kind uh, of. Oh, That's a weird text message I just got from my wife. I won't mention it on the air, though. Uh, I think that this was basically a hey, let's see how he sizes up. Is he someone who could play inside or outside for us? Does he mainly inside? And we kind of like, you know, maybe it's a take. But I, I didn't get the feeling that it was just like super like full core press for him. That's what I'm trying to say. I think
2: it's weird. Can I just like note this? Like I think it's weird how they handled Juco defensive back recruiting. Like you think about like the last four guys they've targeted dating back to like the last class. The Carlos Nicholson, Marquise Gilbert, uh, Justice Ugo, and now Jordan Wright. They hosted all four of those guys on official visits and haven't landed one of them. So I don't I don't really know like it's a weird they all feel weird. They don't feel like normal recruitments. Um I feel like the Carlos Nicholson felt pretty normal. But I remember the same this same conversation was being had when we were talking about Marquise Gilbert and them, you know, maybe not wanting him, and that's why he ended up at Auburn. But it, it just feels weird to host these guys on official visits if you're just trying to, you know. Scout them or get get you know measurements um, I don't know
0: and It and might be worth Mentioning in both the case of Justice Hugo And in Jordan Wright's case Those are condensed recruitments You're you're kind of doing them rapidly So there may be a matter of you have to bring them in An official to kind of do the Recruitment because it is a shorter Calendar to deal with them In Hugo's case, uh, Adam Fuller, Chris Thompson I believe Marcus Woodson as well Went by the school at Blinn During the evaluation period and checked them out I don't know that FSU ever made it out to Fullerton. Tony Tokars does most of the California recruiting. Randy Shannon's dipped in out there too. I don't know of anybody else being out there so far in this cycle um, for FSU. So I don't know that they ever actually went out there. So this may have been their first time to actually lay eyes on Jordan Wright in person was by bringing him in. And the fact that Wright had kind of set his calendar to commit this weekend, I think he did that going into or during the K-State visit, it forces your hand. So – that may be in play here too as
1: well. I think the dynamic at defensive back, and I think what's leading us all kind of uh, having a hard time putting our finger on all these individual recruitments here is I think ultimately they feel pretty good about where they stand at defensive back. Now there's some projection, like someone like Shaheen Brown as your third or fourth safety you're projecting him that he's going to take a big jump from freshman year where he didn't play a ton to where he's all of a sudden be a contributor. Uh, there's some projections that like say a, Greedy Vance, someone who you have as like your swing uh, quarterback who can, who's basically like the number two at both nickel and outside, uh, does end up playing at a high level in the ACC, or that Azaria Thomas is someone that you can end up trusting midway through the season, like how you did Amorian Cooper last year. So some of this, like that, they some of these pieces that they have that they feel good about in the defensive back room are, are still projections rather than say surefire things. Even Renardo Green, like, okay, maybe he has a chance to start uh, opposite of Amorian Cooper this year. But you don't know exactly what that's going to look like. He hasn't played cornerback for a prolonged period under this coaching staff. Kevin Knowles played inside last year. If he's someone who's going to potentially play outside this year, again, that's a projection. So while I think you feel good in general about the pieces that you, you have, uh, you're still saying there's a lot of unknowns. So I think as a coaching staff, they kind of lead you – this is just my estimation. I think that can kind of lead you to start exploring, hey, would this guy be able to help out as an insurance policy, as a safety blanket – just in case. And you start looking at the Juco ranks and maybe, I, I don't know what's happening like in the visits to where they're saying, eh, we're not going to go full out on on these guys. Uh, but but that does seem to be the dynamic that's at play is this lukewarm tepidness because you like what you have and you just want to see if you can maybe enhance it. And then ultimately I think you come back to this guy probably doesn't do more than than push for depth for us.
0: And I, I had a conversation during an UGO recruitment where a person who was familiar with him and liked him and thought highly of him capable of being a good player and had a relationship with staff at blend and thought well of from what they had informed him of, who was like, I don't know if you take him because there's always a possibility of someone better in the portal for what we need. And I think the, the grand scheme of this right now is the need at that position for them is not so great that you just take the take.
1: Exactly, and then why are we spending time and resources towards recruiting that? That then that, that's the other part of the puzzle. But right now, like if you have official visits to burn, you might as well burn them too, right? You can't take them with you,
0: right? And there is always a possibility of somebody departs you. This day and age, where it's a constant rotating door of in and out, where roster management is a constant situation, you kind of always have to plan for the worst case scenario for you. Of man, this kid might leave, even though we don't think he's going to leave, and we think we've smoothed things over. If he does, we have to be in position to strike when it happens instead of being reactive.
1: And if you look at defensive back, you figure you use five DBs pretty consistently as your base package. You have 14 on scholarship right now. So one guy leaves, another one gets it's injured. All of a sudden you're down to pretty thin with your two deep and you're having to play guys at multiple spots. So it yeah. could at, quickly Adam change. Adam Fuller has said in the past,
0: they always over-recruit at DB and D DB line.
1: Mm-hmm because they have so many malleable, they want to be malleable and versatile there. So anyways, I I thought defensive back was interesting recruiting point that Jordan Wright's recruitment kind of, uh, sorry, a talking point. I thought Jordan Wright's recruitment kind of allowed us to, to get into that a little bit. So let's go into what was uh, Jordan Wright was here this week, uh, but there was also a handful of other recruits from, uh, from the high school regs that were on campus as well. Let's start off with big Lucas Simmons. Zach, I'm going to throw to you. He's a top two, four, seven office alignment. Some of the staff has been on for a little while. I remember seeing him on campus last year during the, the mega camp and like coaches from all sorts of schools were flocking to him when he got up there just because man, he, he passes the eye test. So uh, what, what's the latest with Lucas Simmons? How did that visit go this weekend?
2: Yeah. So Dane Draper uh, of North 24 seven caught up with Lucas Simmons uh, yesterday Talked to him for a, a you know a pretty long while and got got some great quotes. Um, Simmons, you know, I, I think it was really important that he made this this visit because he's about to get started on a busy run of official visits beginning the, later this month. Um, and I believe Florida State going to be the only school he unofficially visits before that run. Um, he basically outlined that. Uh, he's extremely comfortable with the staff, um, mainly offensive coordinator and offensive line coach Alex Atkins. Uh, he's also got a great relationship with head coach Mike Norbell. You know, I think probably Florida State and USC are the top two teams in this recruitment, but Tennessee, Florida are two other schools that are getting him on officials uh, in either May or June. And then Oklahoma State already hosted him for his first official official visit on April 22nd. Um, but yeah, man, like, like based on like the, the interview that he, he gave to Dane, it, it really sounds like Florida State's in a great spot. Obviously he's going to go to, you know, four different schools in the, in the next month or so, or next two months. Um, so things could change. We know how recruiting works, but um, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to putting in a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. I want to. I want to see, see how things work out with his official visit slate. Um, but FSU getting his last official, he talked about that in the interview. Um, I'll pull up the quote. But he says, "I just felt that Florida State deserved my last ov because of the relationships I have and the amount of effort they've put in. And I haven't changed my mind about that. I still, I still feel that this is the pl- this is the place I want to close off my officials with before I make my decision." I think that's that's one of the most important quotes in that entire story. It's a great story overall, and, the, and there's a bunch of good good stuff that Lucas says. But um, you, we know how important it is to get the last official visit in in a recruitment, and especially for a guy this talented, a top two four seven offensive tackle prospect, six foot seven, three hundred pounds. Um, you know, I can't remember the last time Florida State's got that highly ranked of an a, a offensive lineman out of the high school ranks. Um, so you know. I, th- I think FSU sits in a good spot. We'll see how his official visit slate goes, but I'll, I'll hand it over to Chris to hand up, you know, handle the rest of the visitors that made it to campus this weekend. Well,
1: real, real quick before we get to Chris there, uh, an exercise that I want to play, uh, a game with you guys real quick. On the count of three, we're all going to say the team that we think is in top contention with FSU, who scares you the most of this official visit slate coming up. I know who Zach's is already because he kind of already said it, but, but let's play it just in case. One, two... Three, USC. 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 All right. NIL era, baby.
0: All right, Chris, yeah. go ahead. Um, So the other visitors of the weekend, four-star defensive back Avery Stewart. FSU was already in his top six entering to visit. He's from Alabama. He's a defensive back. FSU, from what I understand, would start him at corner. And if it doesn't work, move him to safety. That's kind of a general, normal thing with some of the DBs they recruit. That's not all that unusual. He enjoyed himself, came with mom and dad, had a good time. FSU's done a good job of re-solidifying their position in that top six. We'll see if they get an official. I think Kentucky and Michigan State are definitely two other top contenders in that recruitment. Um, There were a couple uh, evaluation tight ends. Um, Finn Jones from Venice, he's tall, he's lanky, he's long. I think he's a guy that there's a heck of a lot of evaluating that has to happen there before any kind of movement. He's not somebody that I would view as – being a likely offer candidate. The other one, Dylan Wade at Orlando Jones, former quarterback who transitioned to tight end last season was decently productive, very physically intimidating. 6'4, 240, really well put together kid. Uh, they're going to see him today. I think they want to see how he moves around, how the athleticism is on the field. I think he's one that definitely intrigues them because he has very good size and you know, he, they believe him to be a pretty good athlete. Uh, 2025 quarterback Colin Hurley, the machine, as I like to jokingly call him, because he's very mature for a kid in 2025 class. He trains his backside off. He works really hard at his craft. He's done a lot at Trinity Christian already in his eighth and ninth grade years, helping him to win a state title this past season as their primary quarterback. He came over here fourth visit in the past year, came over in June, camped, got offered, came back in October, I believe it was, for a game, came back in March. With his seven-on team, that was only about a 10-minute visit because they were leaving for LSU, and he was the last one through the door for the seven-on team because he had to meet them over here. The person he was going with flew in late to Jacksonville, put everything behind schedule. This visit was much more personal, much more chance for him to spend time with Tony tokar spend time with Mike Norvell. He very much enjoyed that. He wants to get back here in the summer for camp, throw with Tokars, kind of go through it. He's a kid that's going to be magnetic to coaching. He's going to be a guy that – he wants to be coached hard. He wants to be coached by somebody that knows what he's doing. He wants to be part of a team that can be competitive and be good. Those are the kind of things he's looking for. And when Being a 25 kid, FSU has time to change the narrative of some of those topics with him. And then B.J. Gibson, who's actually a baseball commitment to Tennessee. I think uh, on his profile it says he's top 100. I think Brett says he's like top 230. You know, Different baseball rankings for different things. But he is a very talented baseball player from Wilcox County. He's a wide receiver on the football field. This was his second football visit. He'd previously been to Georgia, so he came over here. He's going to take one to Tennessee here soon. From what I understand, he's very solidly committed to Tennessee baseball right now, but he likes FSU a lot. He enjoyed the visit. He is getting interest from FSU baseball as well. He mentioned to me that he has talked to Mike Metcalf in the past. I think if FSU baseball turned up the heat alongside football, they could have some lasting power in that recruitment and maybe make it a little bit more interesting down the stretch. But right now, I think he's a kid that's – pretty comfortable with his commitment to the Vols for baseball. He certainly can play both sports in college. He may also be able to go professional in baseball where it just doesn't matter in the end. I think that's all. Did I miss anybody?
1: No, you did say Vols instead of Vols, but that's okay. Zach, Zach will make a, vol- a volunteer joke like he did three years ago, and I'll fall in love with him all over again. Uh, no, that was good, Chris. Uh, yeah, so it was a good amount of visitors. Uh, what do we got on the docket coming up this week with recruiting anything right now i know it's monday and we'll we'll put some things together back
0: on the road for the eval period at this point don't know of anybody coming in i can't think of anybody that's told me may 14th for a visit date um yeah we'll shake trees and see if anything falls out
1: yeah last last monday morning we recorded a podcast and we ended up breaking news on a couple uh a guy entering a transfer portal and fsu having interest and and a a transfer coming uh juco transfer coming for an official visit so yeah stay tuned because Uh, It's early. The week is early. Still Uh, one other recruiting development that I want to get to was wide receiver from Florida. Tyler Williams put out his list of top 10 schools. Florida State was not on it and believe the case. Well, you know, I'm going to let Zach talk about it because I know Zach has thoughts and and feelings. So I won't ramble anymore. Zach, go ahead and tell us uh, what's happening with Tyler Williams in that recruitment.
2: Yeah, and you know I'm not going to just hone in on the the Tyler Williams thing, but I think it's it's a good thing to note of a of a trend we've been talking about. It's the wide receiver recruiting at Florida State. It's just it's not up to par. Um, Tyler Williams, if you don't know, he's a four-star wideout uh, out of Lakeland, Florida State got him on campus in January. They have not got him on campus since then. He is cousins with former Florida State legends Carlos Williams and Vince Williams. Uh, so there's you know the family ties to the school um that's a built-in advantage for Florida State but he releases his top 10 list of schools you've got the usuals Alabama Clemson Florida Georgia LSU but you've also got Syracuse and USF on there um so Florida State fails to make it but you know South Florida and Syracuse make his top 10 so you know I just think and and I don't want to just hone on, hone in on wide receiver recruiting as well. There's other positions like running back linebacker that are both nearly, or, you know, maybe worse recruited this cycle, um, than, than the wide receiver position. But it's just, it's crazy to me. And I remember when we brought this up, um, you know, about the contract extension back in, I think it was February or March. And we talked about how recruiting needed to improve this year. And to be honest, the receiver board in 2023, looks pretty promising, but I, you know, if you look at the top of it, you've got guys like Shelton Sampson, you know, five stars, Shelton Sampson, Jalen Brown, and four-star Hykeem Williams. Like, I'm not, you know, sold that they're going to, you know, land any of those guys. Shelton Sampson's from Louisiana. You know, we know how those recruitments go. It's probably LSU or Alabama. Jalen Brown is really high on Miami. You know, I think it's probably Miami, Michigan's in there as well. Hykeem Williams, he's got like a top three of, in my opinion, like Texas A&M, Georgia, and maybe one other school. Um, but I think Florida State's on the outside looking in on those guys. And I and I think the Tyler Williams things just shows that, you know, that's a recruitment they should 100% be in on until the end. There's no way that they, they should be out of it in his top 10. Like, that's just crazy to me. And and he's got two relatives that went to the school. He visited in January. So it's, it's not like he's... A completely unfamiliar unfamiliar prospect to them like he's been on campus but they just have failed to get him on campus since then um and i and i really am worried about you know that position how it's being recruited and 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 i want to say the same thing about running back you know i don't i don't think like in and at least the receiver board there's a lot there's a you know a good amount of options there we talked or you know I talked about uh, Will Fowles. Um, I I went and saw him when I was down in South Florida this week. And, you know, I think that's a legit guy they're in on. But he's not Mm -hmm. an elite prospect. I feel like the the 2023 recruiting class, um, the receiver class in the state of Florida for 2023 is one of the best that I've ever seen. And I'm not sure if Florida State is in position to land any of the elite guys in state, which, you know, should never be the case, especially in this talented of a class. We've been talking – even last cycle about how talented the receiver class in 2023 was inside the state of Florida and they need to win the state of Florida. And I, and, and I'm not so sure that they're going to land multiple blue chip guys that, like they should this cycle.
0: So to add to Zach's point, they do have commitments from Goldie Lawrence from Sanford, Seminole, Florida. They also have a commitment from being Jacobs all day, Dre, as we like to call him from Vero beach, Florida. I think we both like both of those guys uh, in the case of me and Zach and they're good gets, and FSU obviously has done that. The issue at wide receiver recruiting, and it's not directly tied to Tyler Williams. It's more an overbearing, yeah. multiple-year situation. There's not a belief that they have great closing power there. And that that's a situation at a few spots on the staff and in recruiting with the staff. Running back recruiting's weird. I said it last week that like I like to criticize it, but then they actually have a productive unit in that room. Mm-hmm. And they have guys that are good, but it just amazes me at a school like FSU that has such great history in that room with elite backs, like the Delvin cooks, the work done so on and so forth. Uh, Chris Thompson, Devonte Freeman. There's plenty of others to mention here in the last 20 years, but for the sake of time, I won't mention all of them. They don't recruit that dude. They recruit a lot of different guys with a lot of different skill sets and they go in to gain a decent amount of yards and that's all well and good. But to this point in time, a head coach who's been extremely successful with running backs in his coaching tenure as a head coach has not gone and added somebody to that room. That is just a plain and simple dude in my estimation. And it's just weird to me and I don't get it, but if it's productive, that's fine. The receiver unit stunk last year and wasn't productive and they really did nothing to resolve it from the high school ranks last cycle, which puts a lasting taste in your mouth. That's a nasty taste. You go, you get some transfers, Obviously very disappointing what happened with Winston Wright. That's going to damage his ability to be as big of a contributor as one hoped when he walked through the door. Micah Pittman looks like a dude that can help you. Johnny Wilson's capable. Uh, needs to be more consistent. I'm not expecting much from Deuce fan, especially not in the 2022 season. So you've improved it a little bit, but you haven't done enough. And it, the clock is ticking. And I just don't know if they're going to do it in a year where it's uniquely special cycle with a ton of great talent at that position, especially in – your uh, relative backyard, the state of Florida, don't know that they're going to quite cash in like one would hope. And sure. you know, at the end of the day, if you don't accumulate enough talent, you're not going to win enough games and you're not going to keep your job. And that's just how the business works. And that's what concerns me about FSU as we kind of entered in very, very important hump here for this staff where they got to get over it. They got to win enough and they got to start showing uh forward trajectory, which they've worked towards and they've improved to put themselves in a better position to do that. But they have to do it. But the recruiting in the moment, as of May 8th, 9th, where we're at right now, it's it just I don't have a feeling when I'm dealing with high-level receiver targets that at the end of the day, it's going to matter. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm wasting my time talking to a Sheldon Sampson, for example. And FSU has ties. They've done on campus. Gabe for coached him in high school, has ties to his high school, who's now on FSU staff. Uh, they've done a good job of building a relationship there. But at the end of the day, I don't think FSU has what it takes to win a recruitment like that. And it's not just five stars. It's a whole lot of high-level guys. Like William Fowles is a kid that I feel like FSU is in a good spot with. But till he's in the fold, signed, sealed, delivered, locked in on campus, I'm not going to feel good about it. And that's my issue with that position is that there's no reason to have a great deal of optimism that they're going to get it done at that position because to this point in time, that's the way the story has gone.
1: You guys have a sense of – Chris, you alluded to this. When you talk to a recruit, when you talk to as many recruits as the two of you, and and now Dane included as well, do in your your texting guys and DMing and and talking to guys after interviews or after visits on interviews all the time, you get a feeling for, I guess for lack of a better word, momentum, like of of where there's this buzz about a school. And this going back to – the early signing period uh, with the way that kind of faltered and, and the Travis Hunter stuff obviously was like the the forefront, but some of the other finishes in that in that part of the recruiting cycle, FSU ends up finishing with what, like a top 12, top 15 class or had it at that time. And while that's improvement, and I think some people are like, hey, that's growth moving in the right direction for a team that you know won three games two years before and then five games a year before. I think the big concern I had at that time was did you miss your window because Florida and Miami were down. And that was your chance to really have the uh, momentum bump of a new coach with Mike Norvell while the other schools were having end of cycles with their current head coaches. And I questioned at the time, whether FSU capitalized on that enough. And I think that now as we look at some of the developments that are happening right here in May, and again, it's it's only May, so things can change. But as we're looking at that, that there is not a lot of love in the streets for Florida State. Like there's just not this, ah, Florida State's the place where I need to be right now. Because Miami, because Florida, they have new coaching staffs. Because in the NIL era, USC is getting guys to go out from the state to go visit them. Uh, and you're going to have to compete with USC now for, for guys in your region, apparently, if they want it, because they become a, a player. Uh, because of all those things that are existing, really, fellas, like, I think what it comes down to is like you're in a bit of a, I don't want to say a holding pattern. Uh, but until you win enough games on the field, until you probably overachieve, I think five wins last year was about on what you were expecting with the talent level, until you go ahead and, and overachieve... Uh, you're probably not going to regain that buzz. So so now it's at the point of I think we're starting to turn. It's like now where the on-field results are going to start mattering more and more and going to change proportionally uh, to yeah. to go ahead and, and change where FSU stands in the minds of recruits.
0: Yeah, if they can win and show that they know what they're doing and that's going the right direction, it will be positive. And it will be positive in a multitude of ways. It will be positive towards recruits because they see a direction. I think it will be positive if you want to rectify some of the situations you have with your staff you're going to be a more appealing place for people to come work because your coach isn't going to be in a lame duck status. If they don't win enough, they're going to be in lame duck status, and that's an awful place to live, and I'm not hoping for that. I don't want that. I want them to have positive positive success. I think they've done a good job of trending in that direction. It just has to happen this year. It's a a matter-of-fact thing. They have to be good this year. They have to win X amount of games above 500 and show some positive progress
1: yeah proof of concept is what we call it and you need to do that consistently throughout the course of a season now Uh, the only other thing on wide receiver board that i thought was interesting that that zach kind of hinted at here was that the 2023 class is considered this loaded absolutely loaded talent rich class for the state of florida and you know if you've been following if you're a recruit nick and i'm assuming most people listening to the show have a a baseline of interest in recruiting like you know that this has been a about a 10-year deal now where guys from the state of Florida especially from South Florida where there's so many skilled players uh will take a plane ride over Gainesville over Tallahassee uh maybe not directly I guess to go to Alabama or Clemson or Georgia uh, and so it's this thing that's been happening for a little while now so that, that's nothing new uh, but as we look at like multi-year recruiting trends and like as it applies to Florida State you know last year's recruiting results and Chris talked about this with the the transfers, like you had to go to the transfer class because you weren't able to get the top tier guys and you had a small board uh, from the prep cycle. Uh, Dave, Devon Mortimer was the only guy I think you actually had in the fold and he flips to Louisville late uh, and you weren't able to get Kevin Coleman. Uh, I think that kind of recruitment started to to fizzle after. Uh, kenny dillingham left for oregon i don't think he had much of a shot after that happened Uh, regardless you had a small finite board of prep prospects because you were saying we're not going to reach now because of what 2023 can be and i think that's where if you want to start being critical if if you're closing it's like okay if you're getting nice wide receiver prospects we like the guys they currently have in the fold but are you getting special day one game changer potential types or are you in the mix for those guys and if you're not uh then what were you doing? Then what what did that two-year cycle look like? So it becomes more of an indictment on just this one cycle. Are you getting guys? It's like, well, how are you projecting out and could you have gotten guys, or should you have expanded your board and been more aggressive in 2022? So I think that's where you open up room to to some level of criticism is like what's happening if you're not getting the guys that you were holding out spots for. So any other position other than wide receivers? Last recruiting question I have for you guys. Any other position other than wide receiver where you look at and you say Hey, coming up with the June camp cycle uh, with the following couple weeks here in May with evaluations, a position group that the board desperately needs to expand at, where you just need to be in a better place, whether it's the the quality of options or the quantity. Is there a position yeah. group you look at? I'll let you go for a sec.
2: Linebacker. Um, okay. I can't point to one. I mean, maybe like Caleb LaVallee. But like besides him, like I, I just don't know what they're doing at that position. Like, it, it it baffles me how, like, first of all, there's just not a lot of targets that they've got on campus. But second, there's not a lot of targets that I would consider, like, top targets that, like, you look at any other position, like offensive line, for instance, Lucas Simmons, Roger Kearney, Kelton Smith. We all know those are guys that are high on FSU and that FSU is extremely high on. Um, I are very good. Yeah. And I don't know of any, like, linebackers, like, like the Harris twins. Like I was told that not not the entire staff is told on is sold on the Harris twins. Like the Mike Michael Harris and Andrew Harris out of Lake Brantley High School, both four star top two four seven linebackers according to the twenty four seven sports rankings. Like it it just it amazes me. I, I obviously I, I think that's a position that's the easiest position to say that the, the board needs to expand. But I'm just very confused as to what they're doing there. Yeah, one bit of expansion at that
0: board was Blake Nicholson. He's a kid that they offered here in the last week. Randy Shannon's dealing with – he has set up an official to FSU. He told me he's coming in June or 17th to the 19th. Um, so FSU's in the mix there. That's a recent name that's popped up. But I'd be perfectly fine with that board expanding even further. I, I like how FSU recruits offensive line at the high school ranks where they have sort of a tier system, the guys that Zach mentioned – You know, then you got a guy like Tommy Kinsler, who I know they like, but he's probably the next tier for them. There's several in that category. I like how they do that. I would like to see that idea expanded to other positions where you just need to keep accumulating talent.
1: Uh, One linebacker of note as well that I think Dan and I have talked to is C.J. Turner from Arkansas. He's currently committed to Colorado. I think FSU's been in contact with him. Uh, someone who had a knee injury about a year ago, and I think you want to make sure, I think it was a knee injury, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's a guy they want to see in person before they they offer, but that's someone who might be kind of uh, trending upwards uh, in recruiting in general. He's a top 400 prospect nationally, uh, someone that I think if he shows well in the the summer circuit here could could push for a four-star status. So, yeah. Uh, it'll be an interesting couple of weeks here with the eval period. And then in June, when you get guys on campus to kind of see, um, to have them work out and see, see what happens. So let's move on to, well, let's finish things off. I guess, Chris, I'm going to let you, uh, do your, your robot thing where you can recite numbers and trends and whatnot for every sport going on in the world of FSU athletics. Let's start with baseball. Uh, they did finish this weekend series. Well, uh, but it was not a great start to the week. So I guess, uh, let's, let's get going with that first. So
0: baseball played at Stetson midweek and then went to BC for the weekend. It's a week where they really need to go three and one or four and oh from an RPI standpoint, because neither of those clubs are very good. They ended up going two and two. They looked good in the last two wins there, which was Saturday and Sunday at BC offense came alive. Very good starts on the mound or actually an excellent start on the mound on Sunday, a decent start on Saturday with a great bullpen session from right. White Crowell Parker pitched fantastic on Friday FSU just didn't get it done at the plate, retiring pretty much everybody after the first inning for FSU went down. And then uh, BC kind of came through in the ninth because the pitching faltered. And it, it was an extremely frustrating loss that points to some ongoing issues for that program. The biggest issue that program has is they're six and nine away from Tallahassee. They're 28 and 17 overall, so they're 22 and eight when they're in town. Uh, I guess there is a neutral game in there, so they're actually twenty-two and seven when they're in town because they're zero and one in the neutral game, which was a Jacksonville, Florida game. Um, the game against Florida in Jacksonville, Jacksonville is in Florida. I know. Um, that
1: was a very baseball, so known, that was a very so known, like sequence of of insecurity with
0: your words. So baseball just. Their RPI got dinged by those two losses. That's the biggest negative about the past week. Their ranking's not going to change drastically. They may actually go up. I think they have already in D1 in baseball America this morning, just slightly. The problem for FSU baseball is that some of the things that keep biting them in the backside that are going to probably hinder their ability to do things in the postseason keep showing up. And here we are in almost mid-May. It's the time when your team should kind of be turning the corner and figuring out who and what they are. And they got some issues there. Um, and I know Brett's dived into that good bit on Sunday Gold, so he's going to probably continue to do so. We talk about it frequently. He does an excellent job with baseball coverage, as everybody knows. But uh, baseball this week will play JU, two seven-inning doubleheader games. I believe that's on Tuesday starting at 4. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they host Miami. The Atlanta Braves World Championship trophies coming to town on Saturday if you want to check that out. I believe it's Saturday. might be Friday. Double-check your local listings. Um, Miami's one of the better teams in the country. Number six, I believe, in most of the polls right now. So that should be a great series at Hauser. FSU's been good. They won nine of their 12-weekend series. So they are very capable of being good in a three-game series situation. The issue is that when they lose, it's kind of the same things that keep happening. And it's just aggravating. Running themselves in the outs. Bad relief pitching. Uh, Bats going cold for lengthy stretches with some miserable at-bats. When they put together quality at-bats, they're a pretty good baseball team. And when have good bullpen pitching, they're a really, really good baseball team. The issue is it doesn't always come together. All right, enough about baseball. Softball wrapped up the regular season, went to NC State, played three games completely out of order because rain kept interrupting them. So Friday got concluded on Saturday. Saturday got started on Saturday. Saturday got concluded on Sunday. But after Sunday's game, I know, very weird. We played game three before we finished up game two. Uh, game two, which was the last game of the series, played on Sunday, included seven home runs, school record for FSU. Sydney Sherrill hit three. It was fun as heck to watch. It must be such a mini ballpark or the wind was blowing out. Not sure which it was. So FSU softball finishes the regular season at 49-5, and 19-5 in the ACC. They're number three seed going into the ACC tournament this weekend, Virginia Tech's number one seed. I think there's an excellent chance that those two teams, FSU and Virginia Tech, are playing for the whole thing at the end of it. FSU's probably very much solidified themselves as a top eight national seed at the end of the year. I think that's a pretty safe bet at this point. I don't think this week's going to change that much one way or the other, outside of maybe FSU can trend up to being the number two national seed, which I think right now would probably be Virginia Tech. Um, I think those two could kind of flip-flop, basically. So that's worth knowing. And then Beach Volleyball had a heck of a run here in the uh, NCAA tournament which wrapped up their season, obviously. They made it to the championship match, losing to USC. That's actually, it's a double elimination tournament after you advance through the initial round. Um, they lost both of theirs to USC. So they lost to the best team in the country, who I think finished 37-1 and on the year, I believe is what USC ended up being. So it's nothing to hang their head over. They played USC extremely well. Uh, a couple of girls won pairs that hadn't beat USC peers, or USC peers hadn't lost all year. Lost to FSU peers. It it was very enjoyable. Their match against UCLA to advance from the semis to the championship was an all-timer. If you enjoy watching beach volleyball, which is high-octane, quick, enjoyable, the UCLA-FSU stuff was really good. And they were really competitive with USC. Um, They just got to get over that hump. Since that's become an NCAA type of sport, it's been UCLA and USC. They've owned it. FSU's been right there. At some point, they're going to knock down that wall and get over the hump wasn't this year but they keep putting themselves in position that's all you can ask for and man i love brooke knoll's head coach for beach volleyball she's as competitive as any coach on this campus and her interview was right there in line with that if you got to see it the only other sport really worth mentioning women's tennis wrapped up loss at uf in the round of 32 in the ncaa tournament no surprise there uf's really really good at women's the, those had a really good season especially for Huel. Who led that team and then men's tennis upset Georgia to advance to the round of sixteen in a men's tournament. Very very big win at University of Georgia. Georgia, I believe, was the number eleven overall seed. Real good sign for FSU men that they advance. They will play Tennessee. I believe it's supposed to be Saturday. I saw a time listing of four PM. I don't know if that's NCA announced time listing yet. So yeah, that's about it.
1: Woo. Woo. I got a buy or no- buy or known buy or synon for you, Zach. Ready? Yes, sir. Buy or synon. This is Chris's favorite time of year. It's, it's spring. Yeah, it's a buy, right? It's spring not football. Spring football's done. No, nah, Zach, Zach explain explain why Chris is wrong on his own beliefs.
2: Because he gets to write feature stories on softball, women's basketball hires, uh, you know, baseball. All the really fun. I'm, I'm just kidding. I think softball's really fun, um, and I think the team's great. But this is not my favorite time of year. i think chris loves it
0: the beautiful alignment (laughs) is when fall baseball is happening because there's no crunch to it. you're just watching new guys break in compete inner squad basically basketball is underway at a conference usually playing some kind of early season tournament and football is wrapping up that's the best which is basically october into
1: november i don't think you enjoy that though i think you're miserable that time of year i'm not miserable i'm never miserable (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm never miserable. I uh, don't all know right, what you guys Chris. are talking
1: about. Oh my god. I'm not here for the delusion. Bayers Sinone, Chris, Zach's mustache.
0: Uh, I'm yeah. buying it. I mean it's it's May. Go with the mustache. It's mustache May, buddy. You look no worse than any member of the San Francisco Giants
1: currently. A mustache. A mustache. Now you've said the word mustache. No. Well, anyway, I feel
0: like you did not. Hit the landing in this
1: case. Sticking the landing is cool.